Okay, we are in, not in one Peter anymore. <laughs> if you've been with us over the last couple of months, you may think not another week in one Peter, but we're finished, so there you go. We're in the book of Acts. Very welcome to have a Bible and you want to find the book of Acts, then you are very welcome to. Don't worry if not, the words will appear as if by magic on the screen behind me. And what we're going to do uh, from now through till the autumn, so through the what's left of the summer, is we're going to spend about nine or ten weeks looking at just four, oh wait, wait, five, no, six verses of the Bible. There we go, six verses. Uh, right at the very end of Acts chapter 2, from verses 42 through to 47, that's where we're going to spend our time, and we're going to go really deep into these verses. And you may remember, if you came to our weekend away in the castle back in May, that we actually have already started this series. We've already done four, four talks uh, in the space of one weekend. So if you miss that, don't worry, they're all online. You can catch up with them. And if you don't want to do that, that's fine. All of these message, messages will, will stand by themselves. So what we're going to do is we're going to read these, however many verses there are, and then I'm going to pray, and then we will get into these together. So here we go. This is from verse 42 of Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And this morning, we're particularly going to focus on half of a verse. So verse 43, which says, an awe came upon every soul. Let me pray. Jesus we want to come to you this morning and we want to lift our eyes again to you. As Joe was praying right at the start, we want to bring our, our hearts again to you. We want to say, Jesus, have your way in our lives. We want to know you richly and deeply and passionately in our hearts because we know that's the best way to live. That's the only way to live lives of devotion, and worship to you. And all of that is only possible by your Holy Spirit at work within us. So we invite you now, Holy Spirit, to be at work amongst us, to lift our eyes to you, to shake off the cobwebs and the dust, and to bring our hearts in devotion to you again this morning. We pray, teach us and feed us through your word today, we pray. Amen. Amen. The, these few verses from Acts, the end of Acts chapter 2, they give us this, this picture, this, this kind of portrait of what this, the Christian community, the very first church in Jerusalem, what it looked like. 
So this, is, this happened about seven weeks after Jesus' death, his crucifixion, and then his resurrection. Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the promised Holy Spirit. Then at the start of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the church and they go from hiding away in this room to suddenly they're on, they're on mission. They're sent into their city and the very first church is born. And in these few verses, just give us some hints, some, some ideas, a glimpse of what that church looked like, about what their life was like about what their community, how they functioned, what they did. And this particular kind of half of a verse here where it says an awe came upon every soul. While the rest of the passage talks about some practical things they did, about breaking bread and prayer, fellowship together, devotion to the words, what you get in this tiny half a verse is where all the other things talk about some practices they did. This talks about more the kind of the atmosphere what it, what it was like, what it would have felt like to be part of this church. You know, when you go to a football game um, or when you go to a big concert, one of the things that is most striking is, is the atmosphere, the sense of, wow, there's something, there's something happening here. When you, when you come into this building on a Sunday, when, particularly when you walk in here the first time, you look up at the ceiling, you look around, and you think, wow, there's a kind of a, an atmosphere about this place, not in a weird kind of pseudo-spiritual sort of way, but there's something that happens with, within you. You go, wow. You get this kind of tiny sense of, of awe bubbles up in your, in your heart. Or it says here, for this community, for every soul, for all of them, they were in awe. Something had happened to them that filled them with a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. And this word awe in the Greek, um, is, is actually phobos, which is where we get the word phobia from, as in fear. Or the best way to describe it would be like a holy fear, a reverent fear. That sense in your heart where everything else just stops, everything else just goes silent, and you're just transfixed by something. And there's almost a kind of a, a good kind of terror in your heart. Not that you're scared and want to hide away and think, no, but you think, wow, something has grasped you, something has grabbed hold of you. And that's what has happened here in this church. And the question that we, we need to ask is, what was so remarkable for this very first church? What was so incredible that all of them just, just were, were in awe? It's every soul, not just a few of them, not just the leaders, the head honchos, Every soul, they were, in, they were in awe. Something had happened. And you could say, is it, is it the signs and wonders here? Where it goes on to say, many wonders and signs were being done. We're going to talk about that, that next week. Is, is that what happened? They were seeing miracles take place and they're in awe. Well, maybe. Maybe. I'm sure they probably were slightly in awe of that. But that's not what it was talking about. Or you could look back to the, the verse before where it talks about the fact that they were devoted to teaching and to fellowship, the breaking of bread, praying together. Were those kind of practices of the early church, were those things that they were doing filling them with awe? Well, maybe. Again, that's something that happens when you read the Bible, when you pray. God speaks to you and draws your heart to him. But I don't think that quite gives us the full answer if we look back upon the rest of the chapter of Acts 2, you find what we would call the, the Pentecost story, 
Whereas I said earlier, where God has come to his church, he Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to ascend to heaven, that they need to wait, and the Holy Spirit was going to come. And they have this moment when they're praying together, and the way the book describes it is as they're praying, tongues of fire come and rest on their heads. And then they go out into the city and they start speaking in languages that they don't understand. And they draw this big crowd together. And Peter, who we've just been studying the book that he wrote, Peter preaches this message to the people declaring who Jesus is. It's the birth of the church. And when we were looking back uh, in, in May, when we were away in the castle, we were talking about this verse and saying about in, in Pentecost, how Pentecost has some links with a story in, in Genesis chapter 11, right at the start of the Bible, where there's a story called the Tower of Babel or, or Babel, where what happens is the people decide that they want to be independent from God, that they want to build a tower to the heavens, that they want to show off their independence, how they don't need God anymore. So they build this mighty tower and God stops them. And he spreads them out and says, you're, you're, you're running away from me. So he spreads them out, he divides them, there's disunity. He gives them all their own languages and they spread out and they go and there's this disunity that takes place. And Pentecost on one hand is, is the reversal of that story where there was once disunity by the Spirit God behind this hint that God's bringing unity back to his people, that he's establishing a new family. But also, as well as Acts chapter 2 going back to Genesis 11, it also harks back to another story. Because the whole of the Bible is just this one beautiful big story with lots of connections and links. It's all uh, uh, woven together. And there's this story in Exodus 24. We were looking at Exodus last year. And you get this story where Moses leads the people of God out of Egypt. He takes them out, he leads the people out of the oppression from the Egyptians, and he leads them into, into freedom, which gives us this wonderful picture of how Jesus has led us out. But then in Exodus 24, God tells Moses to go up this, this mountain, Sinai, he tells him to go up the mountain because he wants to speak to him, he wants to meet with him, and he wants to give some commands, some instructions to his people. And Pentecost kind of parallels that story because you get in Exodus 24, you've got this, they're this newly redeemed people. They've been rescued out of Egypt. And seven weeks later, God calls Moses to go up the mountain. Seven weeks after their Passover, after their exit from Egypt, which is the same as Pentecost. Seven weeks after the cross, Jesus, um, the same way that Moses got up to the mountain, Jesus is ascended up to heaven to be with his father. And then what happens is, as Moses goes up the mountain, the presence of God comes down onto the mountaintop to meet with him. The same way that Jesus has ascended up to, the, to his Father, and this time the presence of God doesn't come down on one man, it comes down on the whole community. The presence of God comes upon his people, upon his church. And what happens is, when this presence of God falls upon the mountain, it's described here in Exodus 24, verses 15 to 17, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. 
On the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And God comes to Moses and he gives him this gift of the Torah, the law of God, to instruct the people, which becomes that from then on defines the people of God. They're the people of the Torah. And the same way at Pentecost, God brings another gift to his people, the promised Holy Spirit. And that gets to define the new redeemed people of God, us. We're defined now by the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And the same way that this devouring, devouring fire comes and rests on the mountain, these tongues of fire come and rest on the disciples as they're, as they're praying together. And the same way that God sends his law to seal the covenant he's made with his people, God sends the Holy Spirit to be a seal of the covenant that Jesus has made with us, this everlasting, eternal promise that he will love us and keep us forever. You see the similarities here. Pentecost, the same way that at Mount Sinai is this start, this beginning of this new kingdom, that's what Pentecost is. It's the start, it's not just the birth of the church, it's the announcement that a king has come, that a new age has started, that a new kingdom has come into being, that his people, the church, is sent into the world as the most powerful community that the world has ever known to establish his kingdom. And following the rulership, the leadership of this king, this new greater Moses, this new greater David, this kingly rule of God, this new covenant community is supposed to work out his promises. So you can see maybe now why the people were filled with awe, because this new kingdom has come. We don't quite see it now in our age and time, but maybe a few hundred years ago, here in, in the Netherlands or in England where I come from, when a new king or queen came to the throne, there would be a sense of awe, a sense of wonder. This is our new ruler. This is the leader, this is the one who's in charge. And there was lots of oppression and, and nasty stories of what often happened under kings and queens in the UK and here in the Netherlands. But at the same time, there were people who did a lot of good as well. But there, whatever way, there was a sense of reverence, of fear and awe that there was someone new upon the throne. And that's why this people of God, it says that awe came upon every soul because it wasn't just that there were a few miracles taking place, a few kind of magic tricks to keep them excited. It was a sense of, there's a king has come. It's, it's, we have to understand the story of the cross. We, we think about it so often, so individualistically. We think, Jesus has died for the forgiveness of my sins, which is wonderful and beautiful, but he's also died to establish this new kingdom this new people, this new community, a new king has come to rule over his kingdom. So they were in awe because of that. It says in Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. That's what the story of Pentecost is about. There's a God once again saying, everybody needs to stand in awe of God, of who he is, of what he's done, of what he will do on this earth. And that was the atmosphere of this very first church. 
But I guess you could feel a little bit like, well, this sounds all very amazing and remarkable and rich theology, but you might think, I don't feel like that. Or this church, this community, you might look in from the outside and think, well, you guys, you don't really look very much in awe. You might assess your own heart and think, I don't really feel much awe in my life. And it, can, it might be that we've, we've lost some of that. We've lost some of that. And there are two reasons I want to give you why you may have lost that sense of awe in your life. The first is, is that often we live in this time that we live, in this city that we live, we're often seeking the kingdom, but we don't want the king. We want all the fruits and blessings of the kingdom of God, but perhaps we don't want the king himself. The Dutch theologian, Jehardus Voss, said this, the kingdom of God first, he's describing what the kingdom of God is like. He said, first of all, it's the realm of God's saving grace. Second, it's the realm of his righteousness and justice. And third, it's the realm of blessing and joy. And all around our city, if we look around how this city works, maybe if you assess your own life, how you function, all of us are seeking these things. People come into our city because they want to they find joy, happiness, this kind of hedonistic desire for pleasure in good and bad ways that blesses and corrupts our city. That, that's because they're seeking this. They want the fruit of the kingdom. They want to be blessed. They want to have joy. All the arguments you see, all the debates about politics, equality, liberation, it's because people are seeking righteousness and justice on both sides of the political spectrum, whether it's left wing or right wing, in different ways, they're pursuing justice and righteousness. That's what they're seeking. All of us in many different ways are seeking our own salvation. We do things all the time to try and make our hearts happy, to give us a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of worth. Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? And we try and do things to fulfill our life mission, our life mandate, and we're just trying to work out our own salvation. Everybody in this city, in one way or another, is seeking to work out the kingdom of God in their life. They're seeking the kingdom they want the fruits of the kingdom. They want blessing. They want joy. They want justice, peace, love, hope, freedom. But they don't want Jesus. They don't want the king. They want the kingdom, but without the king. Maybe that's true for you. We're in a city that's, that, that loves its progressive values. It's full of spiritual seekers trying to find a sense of fulfillment. But never looking towards Jesus, ignoring him in their hearts. Each of us, in a way, we're often seeking our own, even transformative Pentecostal moments. People in our city are seeking their own mini Pentecost. They do things, little things, big things, to try and transform their life. I'm gonna get married, I'm gonna get that new job, I'm gonna complete my studies, that new relationship, all the time we have goals that we set ourselves and we think, when, when I get there, when I reach that stage, when I hit that level in the game, all of a sudden, everything will be different. You find yourself living like that? 
with a sense of when I get to here, when I do this, when that happens, everything will change. And we're seeking our own kind of Pentecost, our own mini transformation. But again, we're doing it without, without Jesus. And any sense of awe of God, of holy fear of God the Father, is actually replaced with just a fear of, of ourselves, of letting ourselves down of not even meeting our own expectations or letting other people down. You can be paralyzed by fear of others. You can live out your whole work career day by day, doing everything, fulfilling all the tasks just because you're terrified of letting people down. Or you're terrified of letting yourself down or your parents or your partner. And any sense of awe of God is replaced with just an awe of fear of ourselves. And whereas the awe, the fear of God is a beautiful, releasing, powerful thing, the awe and fear of ourselves is a horrible, restrictive, burdensome thing that weighs us down. It says in Joshua 24, now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Because you have a choice to make. <laughs> Either you're going to live your life serving God in awe of him, or you'll serve something else, some other idol some other dream that promises you so much but delivers so little, you have that choice to make. Who am I gonna follow? Who will I serve? Who will I be in awe of with my life? So it might be that you're, you've lost this sense of awe because you're, you're seeking the kingdom of God without a king. But it also might be, you might think, well, I, I, want, I want this. <laughs> I wanna have this awe. I believe in Jesus. I want him to be the king of my life. I've set my life to follow him, but yet somehow maybe your heart just feels a bit heavy, maybe even a bit cold. Joe was talking about it this morning. We all have wandering hearts. We have wandering hearts that we set them in one direction and it goes off in, in, in a completely different direction. Sometimes I have four daughters Sometimes, particularly when they're a lot younger, or, no, not sometimes I have four, Joe's right, all the time I have four daughters, that's true. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. But they have, particularly when they were younger, sometimes we, if you went, we went out somewhere, it was like herding cats, you know? <laughs> they're just like, where are they all? And you're constantly counting, one, two, three, four, where's the fourth one? Did, do we, how many do we have? Four, three, five? Constantly trying to find where they are all the time. And th that's what our hearts are like. <laughs> we set them off in one direction and then they've suddenly gone over here. You think, how did that happen? We decide we're going to go this way and then we wake up and suddenly we've gone over here instead. Our hearts don't really like to, my heart anyway, maybe yours is different from mine, but it doesn't really like to do what it's told, even by me. It doesn't. It, it likes to do its own thing. It's very independent. It's always going off, running off in its own direction. Trying to, trying to shepherd my heart 
is often a bit like herding cats. It is just everywhere, in a billion different directions all at once. The Puritan John, uh, John Flavel, he wrote this about 500 years ago, and it's still true today. The greatest difficulty in conversion, so in becoming a Christian, is to win the heart to God. And then he goes on to say the greatest difficulty after conversion, now that we're believers, is to keep our heart with God. That's, that's the greatest difficulty It's Christian life, just to keep our heart with God. Because it always wants to run after its own things, its own dreams, its own plans. And maybe you're aware of that. Maybe your faith, if you're a believer in Jesus, maybe it's become a bit, a bit mechanical, a bit cold. Maybe you've, you've stopped reading your Bible. You pray in emergencies at best. You come to church on a Sunday because you feel that you have to. There's lots of different ways that our faith grows very cold and stale because our hearts have wandered and we have to keep calling them back to him. It's one of the reasons we gather every week. It's one of the reasons it's so important to come to church every week, not because you have to, but to tell your heart, oh, let's come back to God. Let's come back to Jesus. I need to run after him again. We all have wandering hearts. And the question then is, well, how, how should I be in awe? You know, I wanna be in awe, how does that work? And you could just say, well, that, well I, need to, I need to, as John Flavel said, I need, to, I need to keep my heart. I just need to keep it somehow, to, just to hold on to it, to grip it. But the thing is, that's, that's, as we said, that's a difficult thing to do. And he describes it, um, I tell you how he describes it, but my phone is refusing to talk to me. I'm just going to read it from here and you can understand it as you go along. But I don't have the quote here on this piece of paper, so you're not, you're not able to read it. It's a tough look. Aha! Yes! Thank you. John Flavel, this is good, isn't it? It's great. I think our computer at the back has got wandering heart syndrome, see? I've been preaching my heart on the computers like, I wonder what's happening in the World Cup today. Here we go. John Flavel says, we are as able to stop the sun in its course or to make the rivers run backwards as by our own will and power to rule and order our hearts. That's, that's a big claim to make, but he's right. We can't stop the sun in its course. <laughs> we can't make the rivers run backwards. And we can't keep our hearts. But in, in Proverbs, that's a, it's an instruction that Solomon writes in the book of Proverbs. He tells us to keep our hearts with all vigilance. So the Bible instructs us to, but yet at the same time we find that it's impossible to do so. Does that, does that make sense to you? So on one hand, the Bible is saying, keep your heart, but you would all say, I've tried and I can't. <laughs> or at least I can for a little while. John Flaffel goes on to say that the duty is ours, but the power is from God. So God gives us the duty, but then he gives us all that we need to fulfill the duty. That's how it works. He sends his Holy Spirit to, to help us. Because what we need is we need a, it's not just that we need to kind of keep our heart, 
but you need a, a new heart. That's what it is to become a Christian. God gives you a new heart, a new covenant heart. Something new happens within your life. Because what, what we find in this Pentecost story is in verse 37, Peter's preached this message to the crowd, and it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. That's what happened. 3,000 people in this grand audience. They've seen the Holy Spirit fall on the disciples. They've heard Peter preach, and it says, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? What shall we do? Which is the question you might come with. You think, I want my heart to run and yearn after God. I want to be in awe of him. What shall I do? And he doesn't say, do your duty, follow the law, keep the rules, work harder. He says this, Peter said to them, repent. Repent, which is to come to God and say, I'm sorry. I want to turn my life around. I don't want to live that way anymore. I want, to, I want to go this way instead. He says, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We ask for his forgiveness. We repent, ask for his forgiveness. And then it says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's how we keep this sense of awe and wonder in our life. It's, it's the Holy Spirit at work within us. We fix our eyes on him. We want to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And then he rushes in with his power. And the wonderful thing is it's not just a one-off thing on the day of Pentecost. We can keep coming to him and asking and say, God, I need you. Fill me again with your Holy Spirit. Help me. I'm unable to do this by myself. I need you. I want to keep my heart, but I need your power to enable me to do that. Help me. Fill me. I need you, God. That's the prayer we can come back to again and again. And ultimately, what the Holy Spirit does, what the Holy Spirit loves to do, is to point our hearts back to Jesus. It's the primary role of the Holy Spirit to say, look at him. Look at what he's done. So you find you come to God and say, oh, I need you. Send your spirit to help me. And suddenly this sense of awe and wonder grows in your heart again. At who Jesus is and what he's done. You've got this wonderful sense of awe and delight. Because we suddenly realize it's not about what we can do. It's not about me keeping the, my duty or fulfilling the law. It's all about what he's done, about his grace and majesty poured out for us and we get this wonderful sense of of awe this sense of holy fear of Jesus I want to follow you not because I have to but because look at who you are this is the best way to live we see his brightness the wonder of who he is and it captivates us by his holy spirit let me just finish by reading a few more verses from Acts chapter 2. This is part of Peter's message to the people. It says, This Jesus, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, 
putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence. He is at my right hand, so I'll not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You've made known to me the ways of life. You'll make me full of gladness with your presence. Let me pray. Jesus, God, we want this sense of wonderful gladness in your presence. The same way that David could write in the Psalms. We want it in our own heart, in our own life. We want all the fruits of the kingdom, his blessing and joy, righteousness, justice, peace, love, hope, your wonderful salvation. But more than anything, far and above the kingdom, we want, we want the king himself. We want you, Jesus. We want to live our lives in, in holy adoration. We want to live in holy fear, in awe of who you are. We want to live in, in the wonderful sense of gladness in your presence. And we thank you, Jesus, that now, from the day of Pentecost onwards, you've poured out your spirit on your people, the church. And this is what defines us now, is that God has come. Our Savior has come. He sent his spirit to live within us, to empower us, to give us the strength we need, to help us to keep our hearts, to keep pointing us day by day to Jesus, to equip us for every good work, Everything that we do is full of your power and your strength with us. And we invite you again into our hearts today. We confess of our humble need of you. We say, Jesus, have your way. I need you. I need you. Come fill me again. Help me to follow you. Amen.